So the legislator did uh, something different with this. It's no longer a political issue. Is it politically feasible in this year to raise the minimum wage? They put a clause in that it automatically adjusts with the rate of inflation. So now we don't have to worry about, you know, voting or is, is it the right election year or anything like that? This is the full story. I'm Tom Kuser. Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont signed a new minimum wage bill back in 2019 that increased the hourly wage by a dollar each year until it reached $15 an hour last year. But it does not end there. The law allows for more increases. Those are tied to the percentage change in the Federal Employment Cost Index. Basically, it adjusts the wage to the rate of inflation. And the very first adjustment was applied on January 1st, raising the minimum wage to $15.69. So what does this mean for workers and businesses in Connecticut? Our guests will help us take a a deep dive into this issue. And we begin with business. Christy Bentima is the president of the Connecticut Business and Industry Association. The CBIA represents the interests of its members by, among other things, lobbying state lawmakers on their behalf. And he joins me on Zoom. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Where did the CBIA stand on the minimum wage uh, idea, the increase, when it went into effect three years ago and leading up to that? Yeah, CBIA was generally against the government mandating or dictating what minimum wage should be with the within the business community and with their employees. They really advocated that the employer-employee relationship stay within the businesses and that the businesses decide what minimum threshold to pay their employees. Here in Connecticut, we generally are a higher wage state, the fifth highest wage state in the country. And so employers are usually uh, you know, pretty aggressive with the amount of money they're gonna pay their employees, even at the min wage level. So we felt it was better that uh, the really the market, the capital market dictate uh, min wages. And if an employer wasn't paying enough, quite honestly, the employees would, would leave and go somewhere else. The increases have been implemented, as as I mentioned, over the past several years, past few years. Uh, what about now? Is CBIA still in that that same uh, that same place as far as thinking about the minimum wage? Well, generally, philosophically, CBIA does not support the government mandating what the businesses and their employees do, and that's for all things: wages, um, whether that's uh, mandates within the business, as far as paid sick leave time or paid family leave time, it's always best to let the market, the capital market, dictate those things because you're gonna go through cycles where the economy is doing really well and like we are today, businesses for the most part are actually paying more than the minimum wage that's dictated by the government. But then you'll go through cycles where the economy is not doing so well and and we may end up with a minimum wage uh, given the increases that it will go through over the coming years that's at a much higher level than is competitive for the Northeast and other states of the Northeast that don't have a high minimum wage like Connecticut does, will then become more competitive than Connecticut. So when the government starts to regulate things in the workplace, you're actually taking the the you know really tying the hands of the businesses and taking it away from the market to dictate what's competitive and what's not competitive. Well, the businesses, of course, have had to uh, comply with uh, with the uh, rules the government put in place as far as the increases to the minimum went. Um, how have they responded? What's What's been the feedback that you're getting from businesses who have had to, to deal with this? And you mentioned that some have actually exceeded the minimum wage, I guess, to attract employees. Yeah, the majority have exceeded the minimum wage. So we're not hearing a lot of, you know, concern uh, uh, over the current minimum wage level because quite honestly, with 103,000 job openings, businesses are doing a lot more than just wages to retain their employees and recruit new employees. In our survey that we do every year, about 90% of businesses have cited uh, retention and recruitment of employees as as their biggest challenge and the thing that they'll invest the most in uh, over the last year and this coming year. And as a result, uh, we've seen min wages in the, you know, close to $20 range for a lot of industry sectors. 
And as I said, the, the average wages in Connecticut is higher than most of the country. We're the fifth highest average wage state in the whole country uh, behind Massachusetts, New York, uh, Washington. Um, and the average wages is you know close to $90,000. So uh, when you look at that from a, a minimum wage point of view, most businesses are paying a lot more than the minimum right now because they're trying to do everything they can to hold on to their current employees and find new employees in order to fill the demand for their products and services that they've seen post-COVID. In addition to doing what you just described, are businesses integrating at all the idea of a living wage into their models, their business models, their way of thinking? Yeah, very much so. They're, they're really looking at when it's all said and done, what does the employee put in their pockets and how does that help them with all the costs that they have and Connecticut is generally a higher cost state, which is why at CBIA we've advocated for things like uh, more affordable, accessible childcare, more affordable, accessible housing. Because when it's all said and done, the employer looks at the live, living wage and what the employee ends up in their pocket. And in a state like Connecticut, there's not a lot left over after taxes to be able to, you know, pay for the housing given the prices of housing today, or pay for childcare given the price of childcare today more and more employers are getting involved in the conversation around not only a living wage, but how can we make those wages go even further? How do we make housing more affordable? How do we make childcare more affordable? How do we lower things like car taxes and property taxes that the employees have to pay for? And more and more businesses are advocating to that affordability for their employees. You go back five years to when the uh the implementation of the minimum wage began. Several of those increases obviously occurred during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, which put a real strain on uh, on many, many businesses. How did that time period impact their ability to stay in business and comply with the law that said minimum wage got to go up? Yeah, fortunately, you know, the pandemic was relatively short-lived, although it feels like it's gone on for a long time, but relative to the businesses being shut down and their recovery back from that shutdown. And so as a result, our businesses are fortunate that they, we make incredible products and services here in the state of Connecticut, that that demand for their product services came back pretty quickly post-pandemic around the fall of 2008. Uh, 21 after, you know, folks were able to get uh, vaccinated and, and come out of the pandemic, uh, businesses saw a massive increase for their products and services. And, and as a result, Connecticut, I think, led the nation in, in fully reopening and recovering from the pandemic from an economic point of view. We still have taken us some time to recover all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. We finally recovered those uh, a couple months ago and, and still have 103,000 job openings because of that demand for their products and services. But fortunately, businesses were able to weather that storm of the of the wages going up, the minimum wages going up, and wages going up all, all around. But quite honestly, we've all felt that as the consumers. You know, that's what dri has driven a lot of inflation. It's, it's been the supply chain increases, it's been the wage increases at the min level, but all at all levels, quite honestly, wages have gone up quite a bit. Last year in, uh, in Connecticut, wages on average increased 4.4%. And as a result, that usually gets passed on to the consumer. And we've felt in that here in Connecticut, but we've also felt that across the country with uh, with a, quite an increase of on the overall inflation and products and services costing more than they did pre-pandemic. Would you say then that, because you mentioned again that uh, a number of businesses have gone above and beyond the minimum wage in order to attract and keep employees, how much of that was due to perhaps um, some of the momentum driven by the increase in the minimum, minimum wage uh, from the government, and part of it obviously having to do with uh, what the market was, was pushing. Yeah, the vast majority was what the market was pushing. It, it, as I said, you know, we're in a time where the minimum wage from the government has been less of a, of a driver, less of an issue, and it's really what the market's driving, and the market's driving higher minimum wages than the min wage level that the government set. It's hot, driving higher wages overall. Uh, and so, you know, like I said in the beginning that, you know, sometimes the government sets them in wage level and it's actually going to be below where the market uh, is going to be. And that other times it's going to, you know, have a min wage level that's going to be higher than where the market is. And that's why it's always important to really let the market control that. But right now, 
the main driver of the higher wages is businesses doing everything they can to recruit and retain. And that's beyond wages. That's you know providing flexible workplaces, hybrid environments, uh, benefits that we haven't seen before, like childcare subsidies, tuition reimbursement, housing subsidies, in addition to your traditional benefits of medical insurance, life insurance, uh, disability insurance. So businesses have been very, very creative. And fortunately here in Connecticut, that creativity has paid off in that we have one of the lowest turnover rates in the whole country. Uh, and that's uh, you know really, really critical to keep those employees that we have while retaining and attracting new employees. In a couple of weeks, 2024 with the new year, the state's minimum wage will be linked to the employment cost index as calculated by the U.S. Department of Labor. Will that impact wages very much given that there are so many businesses exceeding the minimum wage? Uh, it will impact what the min wage is. Yeah, I think it's going to go up uh, you know, close to 80 cents with that inflationary adjustment. And, and that becomes a concern. Now we're going to be tied to an index that will most likely go up and up and up every January 1st. And at what point in time you know, does that increase uh, cross the line of where the market is or where the market's willing to be on a min wage? And then when, you, when that happens, when you eventually cross that line because either we're in a softer market uh, there's, there's, there's more employees available to hire, especially at the entry level. That's when you start to see a state like Connecticut uh, become less competitive and businesses then start to look, okay, should I relocate? Should I open up uh, a facility in another state that doesn't have, have as high minimum wage, uh, whether that be here in the Northeast or somewhere else around the country? Because it's, it's much easier for businesses to move today than it was pre-pandemic, especially in this hybrid environment. Uh, before, when you moved, you were worried about the disruption to your employees. But now in a hybrid environment, you can move, the employees stay where they are and can work uh, more remotely. You know, not necessarily for manufacturing, but for a lot of our professional services sector. So that becomes a concern when you're tied to an inflationary index. There's going to come a point in time, we don't know when that will be, when the min wages will cross over where the market wants to be for, for min wage levels and, and businesses will start to look elsewhere. And, that's why we've got to keep a very close eye on this to make sure it doesn't escalate too much. I was wondering about the size of a business and the minimum wage. Are smaller companies more directly impacted by the increases than larger ones? Absolutely, yeah. When you're, you're a small business, you know, you're, you're doing everything you can to keep your lights on, pay your employees, obviously keep your, your customers happy. You don't have the resources, financial and human resources that the large companies do. And this is our biggest concern at CBIA with 90% with of our membership employing a hundred employees or less. You know, we have mostly small businesses in our membership and that's generally the demographics of Connecticut. Connecticut is the land of small businesses. The average size business in Connecticut is about 20 employees. So that's really where you worry about the min wage impacting those businesses. Can they stay competitive? Can they compete against the large businesses where the min wage maybe isn't as big an issue with a businesses, big businesses have more resources. Can they compete against those other businesses across the country and across the world uh, when they're operating a four, five, six person business and they don't have a lot of financial resources? Connecticut's also become, you know, to our credit, the land of startups. Uh, we have uh, about 1,100 businesses starting up every month uh, here in Connecticut. And that's been happening for about two years now post pandemic. And that's a really good thing to be that, that state that nurtures startups. But you worry about the min wage impacting those startups as well because they're literally just getting going and how much does the wages cut into their ability to make a profit to be able to invest back in their businesses that's uh, that's interesting it sounds like then the minimum wage isn't necessarily scaring away new businesses no not at all like i said we've had great startups and connecticut is really the state of innovation and cultivates that innovation and i think that's why a lot of businesses want to start up here I think a lot of employees are, are really innovative and sometimes they think about leaving their employer and starting their own business. And so we see a lot of startups in Connecticut. We just wanna make sure we continue to cultivate and nurture uh, that culture of startup businesses and, and things like minimum wage or labor mandates or taxes don't become a disincentive to that. And so it's just something we've gotta to continue to monitor. It sounds like too, the smaller companies, possibly the, the newer companies that are starting up that are smaller, uh, those, maybe the ones who have the most difficulty providing what we talked about before, an actual living wage, uh, you know, something that actually makes it possible for someone to afford rents or 
uh, transportation to get to and from work and health care, those kinds of things. Very much so. And, and that's why we just got to continue to watch the impact on policies, whether it's policies that are trying to drive to more of a living wage, as you mentioned, uh, or policies in general and their impact on businesses in Connecticut. Because we really are you know, two sets of businesses in Connecticut. We, we have great blue chip companies in here in the state, well-known business brand names. Many of them are in CBI as members. Uh, but as I said, we've also the land of the small businesses and the startups. And that's why we always advocate at CBI to not have policies that are just broad brush. You know, watch your, your employee thresholds. When we advocated against uh, paid leave or, or the minimum wage, we didn't advocate against it and its philosophy. Philosophically, it made sense. It just doesn't make sense that it, it applied to certain size companies. So we were really advocating for employee thresholds. Should the should the minimum wage only apply to businesses with 100 or more employees or 50 or more employees? We have a tendency of the broad brush here in Connecticut when we when we pass policies and some policies the bigger companies can maybe handle, but a lot of our small uh, companies and, and startup companies can't handle. And we've just got to watch those policies very closely. Not, we're not a one size fits all state. You touched on this before. Maybe you could elaborate. What kind of support do you think the state can provide to help with um, wages, maybe not directly impacting what's paid, but what people have to spend their money on in order to afford the kind of a wage they can, uh, they can garner? Yeah, that's really where the sh they should be hyper-focused. It's not so much increasing the wages, but what's the net that that employee puts in their pocket after all their expenses here in Connecticut? I'm not just talking about you know, the payroll taxes and the things that the net paycheck, but what's their net that they are living with on a week-to-week -week basis in the state? And we're generally a higher cost state in, uh, in the country. We're a higher wage state as a result of that. But it, we can't always be pushing wages up higher and higher because eventually the state will become less competitive with our neighboring states here in the Northeast and, and with the states in the country. And we're more of a global world today and, and we've got to compete globally as well. So the state really should be focusing on how do we lower costs for those employees in Connecticut to make it more affordable for them to stay here or want to move to the state. And that's things like making housing more affordable, producing more housing, housing subsidies, a tax incentive to buy your first home, child care, you know, child care subsidies, having more child care uh, across the state of Connecticut, uh, looking at taxes overall, both on the personal side and the business side. We often hear when employees move to the state and they get their first property tax bill or their first car tax bill that they don't see that in other states. You know, that's something of a bit of a surprise to them. You never want employees to be surprised when they've just relocated to Connecticut. The other thing is on the estate and gift side, we're one of the a few states in the country, the only state in the country to have an estate tax and a gift tax. And so when employees are thinking about, you know, uh, their, their succession planning process, they, they get surprised by that as well. Those are the things the state needs to look at. How do we make the state more affordable, more competitive on a net basis against our neighboring states and, and states across the country? One group of workers that don't receive the minimum wage as dictated by, by the state uh, are some restaurant workers, those who depend on tips uh, below $15 an hour. But I understand that could change. Some state lawmakers have proposed the one fair wage bill, which would require businesses to pay workers the full state minimum wage for those folks who earn tips. Uh, how do you think that would affect the restaurant industry in Connecticut? Certainly they're saying it's going to be a problem. Yeah, it, it will be a problem. It's not a good way to go. You know, the tip workers minimum wage has worked out very well for the Restaurant Association, which is still recovering since the pandemic. You know, no, I think no other industry got hit as hard as the Restaurant Association uh, did during the pandemic. More than 600 restaurants closed down. Uh, they're they're you know, finally getting back, but we don't have the streets, uh, the feet on the streets that we had pre-pandemic. And so in some of our cities and towns, you know, businesses are working hybrid and remotely, which means their employees aren't local and therefore aren't eating local, aren't spending local, and the restaurants are still you know, trying to work over through that challenge. And so we've heard from a lot of restaurants that if you go to a minimum wage level here, you're really going to put those restaurants out of businesses. They have very, very skinny margins uh, and they're trying to do everything they can at a time when food costs are going up, beverage costs are going up because of supply chain challenges. Uh, you know, and, and most of the restaurants have said when they've done the analysis and the employees have done the analysis that their employees are actually making more than minimum wage once you do factor in the tips. 
uh, and most of their employees, you know, are want to continue to work in the restaurant industry because of the tips. Uh, and if you go to a min wage, you'll start to maybe remove the tips from the equation, and the employees will actually be hurt by it rather than benefit by it. The irregularity, I would think, in the kind of traffic some restaurants get um, during the pandemic, for instance, things slowed way down. When you depend on tips, that can be a pretty erratic sort of a paycheck that uh, that you're you're getting uh, as opposed to the steady kind of an income you'd get with a minimum wage. Yeah, it could be. And that's why I think more and more restaurants have debated about tips going to the individuals who are working those tables or those customers versus the pulled approach. Uh, and more and more restaurants may be looking at that pulled approach where you know, during your whole shift there, which hopefully crosses over at some point a busier time of the restaurant that the employees are benefiting from that pool. And, and you know, more, more restaurant workers have the choice. Do I go work for a restaurant that has the tips directly come to me or do I go for a pooled restaurant? And, uh, and that's good that they have choice. And there's certainly a lot of restaurants hiring right now um, and the, for the employees to be in demand. And, and again, the market will dictate a higher min wage for those employees because there's there's demand uh, for more and more restaurant workers. Thank you uh, so much for sharing the business perspective on the minimum wage and uh, where things go from here. We appreciate uh, your time today. Christy Pantima is the president and CEO of CBIA. Again, thanks for your insights and your information today. We appreciate it. Good to talk to you again. And what about the workers? Has the gradual increase of the minimum wage to $15.69 really elevated the living standards of some of the lowest paid workers in Connecticut? Or has it just kept them from slipping deeper into poverty? We're going to ask the president of the Connecticut AFL-CIO to weigh in on that question. Ed Hawthorne joins me on Zoom. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Certainly. First of all, do we know how many people in Connecticut overall earn the minimum wage? I don't have the number offhand, but there are a lot of people that still do earn the minimum wage. And, you know, they're the hardworking people that live paycheck to paycheck that are just struggling to get by. That's why in 2019, uh, the Connecticut AFL-CIO was proud to lead the charge to pass legislation to eventually getting to the uh, 1569 an hour, which you mentioned before. Uh, how about your members? How many uh, How many union members earn minimum wage? Not a lot of union members earn the minimum wage because when you bargain together, you have power at that table and you're able to bargain for higher wages. So what we've seen is as the minimum wage goes up, our workers' wages go up. We're in the labor movement, we're a big proponent of a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's exactly what the minimum wage does. It sets the floor and every other boat goes up from that floor. What type of worker would you say typically earns the minimum wage in Connecticut? Uh, we're talking about predominantly black and brown workers, uh, women, and those are those are the ones that you know we really push for. And the the workers that told their stories about how they're struggling and their personal stories, and they work tirelessly along with us in community groups to get this bill passed. This increase to fifteen sixty nine that was stretched out over yes. five years, I believe. Yes. How much does this final 69 cent increase amount to for the for the average worker? Does the new minimum wage really improve the financial health of workers? Or as as I mentioned before, is this just sort of preventing families from slipping further into poverty? So the legislator did uh, something different with this. It's no longer a political issue. Is it politically feasible in this year to raise the minimum wage? They put a clause in that it automatically adjusts with the rate of inflation. So now we don't have to worry about, you know, voting or is, is it the right election year or anything like that? To me, it's three things. First, it means that we'll have higher purchasing power. It won't make less money in the future because of inflation, because it'll go up along with inflation. It also is positive for business. And hear me out. It, it gives predictability for businesses that there won't be a spike to catch up when it's politically feasible, that they can plan for it. Because they'll know each year what the rate is going to be as it goes up with annual inflationary and things such as that. It 
incrementally helps, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers receive that raise each and every year. Everyone loves when, when the politicians go around, they take a walk card with them and they'll come knock on your door and they'll send you those mailers in the mail. This is what I did. And it's always a good thing for Democrats in the state of Connecticut or even some Republicans that are a little bit more progressive to say, I raised the minimum wage. But they made a choice to do the right thing and not the political thing. They showed some vision here in, in making it better for the workers so that they don't have to take a vote on it every single year. So you'd expect that um, then the political aspect of this of this issue, of this debate, as it was in the past, will not resurface in the future. Laws can be changed. Well, it, it'll resurface, but in a different way. When we talk about the minimum wage, we should also remember that some workers are legally allowed to be paid some minimum wage. Those are the tip workers, servers, and bartenders, for example. In 2019, the legislation that we're talking about here raised the standard minimum wage that established those annual increases. That means over you know seven years, they received that raise. But our tip workers for seven long years have been stuck at a sub-minimum wage of $6.38 an hour. So while some workers that were eligible for the standard minimum wage saw 46 percent raise on January 1st, tip workers, our servers, our bartenders got absolutely nothing. Now, seven states, seven states have already eliminated the sub-minimum wage. The sky has not fallen. These states have higher job restaurant growth rates and higher small business growth rates and higher tipping averages than Connecticut. We're talking about California, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. As you can see, there's some deep red states already put in there. And I'll tell you what, when I go to Vegas, I tip my servers. It's not going to get rid of tipping. It's so ingrained in our culture. It's uh, that minimum wage plus. Do you think the so you talk about you know the subminimum wage and then and then the tips that seem necessary to uh, bring them up to uh, I guess we might say a living wage or or you know close to yeah. what the minimum wage is. Do you think that the the increase in a minimum wage, the increase in really um, a sub-minimum wage, does that affect worker productivity in a positive or, or negative way? I can remember going way back many, many years when I got a 15-cent raise from $1.15 to $1.30. My boss, who was a very nice guy, he said, you're just going to have to do 15 cents more worth of work every hour now. I, I don't know that uh, that was actually possible, but does the change in the wage affect productivity is, is my basic question. What do you think? I'm a big proponent of a happy workforce as a productive workforce. And if you're paying them more, they're more likely to do more work. So if, if you are compensating people and they're more comfortable at home and they don't have that stress of, you know, do I pay the heating bill or do I pay the mortgage this month? They're more focused at work and they're going to be more productive because they're going to live a happier life. So if you pay people, like you said, the, the minimum wage is not a living wage, but if you pay people a living wage, it will increase their productivity. Let's talk for a moment about the difference between the minimum wage and a living wage. Far apart? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is not one state in our great union of the United States of America where somebody making the minimum wage can afford a two-bedroom apartment and afford to live. I mean, if you look at the United Way puts out almost every year, I think they stopped doing a little bit uh, during the pandemic, but almost every year they put out the Alice report. Uh, it's asset limited, income constrained, and employed. So if your listeners search Alice Report United Way, they can read about the struggles of the working class and how they struggle just to get by and survive. So the living wage and the minimum wage are not synonymous with one another. They are two very, very different things. So from a union perspective, what's the answer to that problem? Since the odds of bringing the minimum wage up to a living wage are really not very good. What's the answer? Lowering costs? The answer to the problem is people grouping together and getting with your coworkers and bargaining at a bargaining table with your employer in order to get that raise. Uh, people are waking up and you see the organizing going on throughout the country, the strikes of people that couldn't take it anymore. I mean, you look at you know, what UAW, I call it, when you're in negotiations uh, before you go out on strike, you usually get what's called the last best final offer. I call that a lie because that's not the last best final offer. If you look at what UAW was uh, proposed by the big three automakers and what they ended up getting after those rolling strikes that they put there, that's power. 
and that spread throughout the industry. You look at what UAW got and the non-unionized shops were also raising wages in response to that. So the answer to this struggle is grouping together because collective power leads to collective gains. What about things like um, providing affordable housing or companies being involved in that, uh, uh, expanding public transportation for workers who can't afford cars or uh, are living in places where they're just not practical, lowering the cost of food, those kinds of things doesn't raise the wage, but it could bring minimum closer to living wage if those kinds of changes were enacted or, again, companies and government got involved in those kinds of changes. Oh, absolutely. We definitely need more affordable housing in Connecticut. I mean, we look at some of the lower wage workers that I represent, you know, from uh, SEIU 1199, the group home workers, the, the people that are often in the background and forgotten, lifting up the people that they provide care for every single day. Some of them are living in their cars because they can't find housing. So, you know, the way the housing market is now, the legislature seems to be uh, getting there on that subject, but they need to move faster because people out there are struggling and housing is a right. People have the right to live under a roof. So, you know, we really have some work to do in the state of Connecticut on that. There was an article uh from the Connecticut Insider about the minimum wage now tied to the index, uh, index tracking overall employee costs. And uh, Connecticut Insider said it's meant to ensure that the lowest paid workers don't get left behind in an overall uplift in pay. What do you think being left behind means? Can workers still be considered left behind despite the new increases, the minimum wage increases? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is tied to inflation, so it does take that into account. But we just talked about our tip workers who were completely left behind by all of this raise. It's past time for one fair wage, one minimum wage, and to really lift up all workers to boost spending. If you put money in the hands of the working class, they're going to spend it in their communities and generate economic growth at a local level. And that's exactly what raising the minimum wage and you know getting rid of the subminimum wage will do. You touched on this before in connection with uh, with tipped workers, but just generally, too. Has the increase caused, the minimum wage increase, caused some employees to lose their jobs because businesses can't afford to pay their workers more, or they'll, they'll pay a few of them more and shrink their workforce? I have not heard that at all, but, you know, if... <laughs> Employers have right-sized and downsized to the point where they're no longer hitting the bone and they were hitting the marrow during the pandemic. So if they're getting rid of workers because of a slight increase in the minimum wage, they're probably not running their business correctly to begin with. Ed Hawthorne is the president of the Connecticut AFL-CIO. We've been talking about the minimum wage and what it means to Connecticut workers. It's up to fifteen sixty-nine now, going up tied to the the index that we discussed. Uh, Mr. Hawthorne, thanks again for uh, joining us and uh, sharing your insights from the union perspective on minimum wage. We appreciate it. Always great to be on the show. Thank you. Is this new minimum wage the same as a living wage for workers in the state? Well, Lisa Tepper Bates, the president and CEO of United Way CT, is here to address that question. And she joins us on Zoom. Welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. A couple of definitions uh, before we get into it. We talk about a minimum wage. We also hear people talk about a living wage. What's the difference between those two? So, Tom, that's a great question. When we say uh, a living wage, which for us means the minimum amount a family or an individual needs to make uh, so that they can afford the cost of living, uh, that, that's what we're referring to. What do you need to make so that you can actually pay the bills in the place where you live? And that's not necessarily the minimum wage. Well, unfortunately, it's not. Uh, and that is where the ALICE report that the Connecticut United Ways have issued uh, in 2023 helps us to think about the difference between what a minimum wage is and what it actually costs to make ends meet. So before we get uh, too deeply into the ALICE report, 
Another definition I think we need is uh, what is the federal employment cost index, which will adjust the minimum wage, as as we mentioned, uh, beginning at the 1st of 2024. It's interesting. There are different ways to think about the most important perspective on the cost of living. And what we look at is what we call the Alice Index. Um, many different ways to look at the cost of living, for example, the Consumer Price Index, take into account a very wide range of prices on different items. And the Alice Essentials Index looks rather at what the households who are living paycheck to paycheck, often those making minimum wage or right around there, what do they actually experience in the way of inflation in terms of the bills they have to pay? And that's where the Alice Index to us is more meaningful than these different measures that take into account a much broader range of consumer goods and different types of services to think about inflation. So it sounds like you don't think using the national index, the federal employment cost index, is really the best way for Connecticut to determine its minimum wage. We would argue that that federal index, like the consumer price index, is one way to look at prices, but that doesn't mean that it reflects the actual inflation that a household making minimum wage is experiencing in the way of what they have to pay, again, just for the basics, rent, food, fuel, those costs are what we look at with the Alice Essentials Index. And it tells a very different story about the actual impact of inflation. Uh, what are some of the key findings? You've, you've defined for us the, what the Alice report is. Uh, what are some of the key findings of the latest report? Yeah, so Tom, in, in the most recent report, which is based on 2021 data, what we found is, unfortunately, the number of Alice households who are, as we use the term, asset limited, income constrained, but employed, those households in Connecticut, the number has grown. And it's now 39% of the state. That's 50,000 more households than when we issued our last report. And that difference, actually 54,000 more than in 2019. And this is based on what we call a survival budget. So what a family or a single person needs to make just to pay the cost of necessities. And what we found is that for a single person, they needed to make $16.56 an hour, at least in 2021, just to make ends meet. For a family uh, of two parents and two small children, so that, that's an expensive family, but it is a young working family in Connecticut. Uh, they needed to make $26.66 each an hour in order just to make ends meet and before taxes. Um, and for context, in 2021, 60% of the top 20 most common jobs in Connecticut paid less than $20 an hour. So that tells you something about the mismatch between the jobs available and what they pay and the cost of living in our state, again, especially for families with children. So to elaborate just a bit, that working couple with two small kids would really need to be bringing in $52 something an hour to really meet their needs, their their financial needs. That's right. They would need about $106,000 a year in 2021 just to make ends meet. And that's driven, Tom, in no small part by the very high cost of child care for small children. Because again, this is a family of two parents, a baby and a toddler. But these are the people we most need in our workforce. Those young workers uh, capable of taking on the types of jobs in Connecticut that right now we know uh, many are unfilled. We have about 100,000 unfilled jobs. We believe part of that is driven by the fact that the cost of living and the cost of childcare is so high that some folks can't afford to be in the workforce right now. And so that's one of the things that Alice study tells us. How far back does the Alice report go? How many years has the United Way been uh, doing the Alice report? So our first Alice report in Connecticut uh, was in 2014. And this is our fifth report. We were the second state in the nation to join this national project. Uh, so our data does go back to 2014. Has there been a big change in the past eight, eight nine years, well, seven years, I guess, 2021 year, 
you're saying is the most recent data available to base the report on. Has there been a big change in the dollar figure? You mentioned $106,000 to meet uh, the needs in 2021. There has been a big change. And uh, unfortunately, Tom, as we were talking about earlier, it really comes back to the effective rate of inflation that these families face in our state. And just as an example, uh, when you look at that Alice Essentials Index, which we believe is such an important way to think about the increase in cost of living to these families, uh, just since uh, 2021 and forward in time to 2023, where we are now, the Alice Essentials Index reflects an 18% increase statewide in just the cost of that household survival budget. And so when you think about that, it helps to describe the very sharp upward rate of, the, of ascent of that Alice budget. Uh, and if you take that rate of inflation, uh, then what that tells you is that in 2023, the cost of living for that family of two parents with two small children is 126000 that we estimate this year in 2023 for them just to make ends meet. In 2021, we were still in the, well, we're still in the midst of a pandemic, I suppose, although it's it's um, changed to some extent. 2021, we were really in, in the heart of it. Did that, or how did that affect the economic status of, of these folks who, uh, are, are included in the Alice report. Yeah, so the pandemic, of course, was, was very hard on all of us, and there was a lot of economic dislocation and a lot of impacts that we all felt. Uh, but as you may recall, there were actually some extraordinary measures at the federal level that were really very helpful, especially for families with children. Uh, there were enhancements during the pandemic, especially to uh, tax credits, that really helped families. Uh, there was a significant enhancement to the child tax credit uh, for a limited period of time. Uh, and there was also a significant enhancement to the child and dependent care tax credit. And between those two credits, uh, an eligible family may have uh, gotten as much as $15,000 in tax credit benefit to help them make ends meet. Uh, those two tax credits have bounced uh, back to pre-pandemic levels, and in fact, the child tax credit at the federal level is uh, right now uh, scheduled to decrease even further still. Uh, so what that means is uh, families in 2021 experienced a significant federal boost to their ability to pay their bills, uh, and that funding is simply not available to them now. Uh, so that's, that's a, a, a really serious problem that we are asking our state leaders to take into account as we look to 2023 and what can be done for these households. Another financial level measurement uh, term, I suppose we could say, that I think a lot of people are familiar with is the federal poverty level. How does that relate to, again, to the Alice report? Is the poverty level as defined by the federal government another sort of outdated um, uh, kind of measurement? It is. Outdated is a good way to put it. The federal poverty level ceased to be meaningful as a term to help us understand who is struggling financially and who is not, uh, probably a couple of decades ago. And that's why, even with regard to many federal benefits, you often see the eligibility set at 135% of poverty or even 200% of poverty, because the federal government and state-level governments as well understand that that's a, a truly arbitrary line. The federal poverty level for families in 2023 is about $30,000. $30,000 uh, for a family in Connecticut will likely not even pay your rent, let alone your utilities, your food, your cost of health insurance, and other essentials. So we, we asked people to understand that that uh, benefits eligibility line that the federal government sets with the federal poverty line is, is not a good way to think about who's struggling and who isn't. And that's really where the ALICE project came from. Uh, it was a desire to have a different way to show people what it costs to live in our community and therefore how to think about who is struggling. That's where the ALICE project comes in to help our, 
leaders and, and just citizens of the state generally understand that, in fact, almost 40% of our state is struggling every month to live just barely paycheck to paycheck or, in fact, falling behind and not able to keep up. And that's very different than thinking about who in Connecticut may or may not be earning enough to be at that federal poverty line. You talk about the Alice reports helping pretty much everyone better understand uh, what's needed to live financially in Connecticut. And you said in an interview with CT Mirror, uh, quoting here, the layperson I don't think understands how severe the situation for so many working people has become. Why do you think that is? And what is the effect, what is the impact of many people sort of not getting it or, you know, hearing numbers like $106,000 a year, 126 needed to make ends meet and thinking, well, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and, and you're right, Tom. And, and we often get that reaction when people hear these numbers. Uh, and then what we say is, okay, let's look line by line at the Alice budget. And what I can tell you is every time I've, I've had the opportunity to engage in, in that discussion with a skeptic, every single time they've looked at the line items in our Alice budget and said, well, that's too low. You can't rent an apartment for a family for that. I've never had anyone say, those numbers are all too high. Uh, you could make ends meet with less. I've never had that reaction. And I think, Tom, it is because for so long, we have had this federal poverty line uh, that people have become accustomed to as a way to think about who is struggling with poverty and who is not. And it's a much lower threshold. So I would say that between that, uh, that anchoring of our thinking in that artificial federal poverty line and the fact that it has been a, a, a long time coming that we're at this point. It's been decades of a, an economic growth in our nation that has disproportionately benefited those at the top. And the numbers tell us this. This is, this is well understood. But it's not just a, a fact that people at the top have done better. The working class of our country has seen the bottom falling out from under them. Their wages have not kept up with the cost of living. And I think a lot of folks, because it has been a slow progression to where we are now, they haven't felt that themselves. Or if they have felt it, sometimes they felt that it's their own failing. At the end of the month, they say to themselves, oh my goodness, why don't I have more left? But the real fact is that they're not able to save because the costs have been growing faster than their income. In the Alice line by line that you mentioned, looking line by line, does student debt figure into the equation for many of these families who uh, find themselves not being able to make ends meet by the end of a month? That's an excellent question, Tom. And, and I'm sorry to say that the Alice budget does not take into account debt. And there's not only student debt, but there are people who may have car loans. They may have uh, a mortgage. Uh, and in fact, they may have consumer credit debt also looming over them because we know that consumer uh, use of credit is increasing very sharply right now. And we know anecdotally that many people are using a credit card to buy groceries, to buy gas, because they can't make ends meet with just what they're making in a month. Why isn't debt taken into account in current Alice reports? The Alice project is grounded uh, very carefully in data sets that are very solid. And unfortunately, there is not an easy way to map debt to Alice families such that it would meet the standard for the way the Alice report is constructed. Uh, our partners at the national level are looking very hard at how to bridge that gap because they also agree it's important. But we also know that the credibility of the Alice report matters. And so unless there is a very solid data set that we can be confident in with regard to that intersection of Alice population and consumer debt and student debt, we, we don't want to pull that into the report uh, until we're very on very solid footing. What's the answer or what might be the answers to improving the economic health of low-income households? Something the state can do, something the business community can do. What, what, what do you think some of the answers might be? 
Well, we feel it's very important to look at the data and what it tells us about what has worked and why. Uh, we know that the earned income tax credit has been uh, transformational for households in America. And we're very pleased in Connecticut that our governor and, and our state legislature agreed and this last session increased our state earned income tax credit to 40% of the federal credit. And, and so that's important uh, because what we know is that the best way to help these households is to put more money into their wallet to pay those bills. Uh, another way that we know has worked to reduce child poverty in America is the child tax credit. At the state level, we don't have the same levers as the federal level, but nonetheless, it is possible and many states have found good success by creating a child tax credit. Again, to put in the wallet of that family the money they need to pay for whatever is that gap in their budget. Uh, so we think it's important to look at those measures uh, and to think hard about how at the state level we can do more, uh, especially to support the children and the, the young people in those families who are the future of our state. Where can people go to get more information about the Alice Report or about the, the minimum wage? Well, thank you for that question. They can visit alice.ctunitedway.org. And that's Alice spelled it. like the name, A-L-I-C-E. Yes, I'm yes. sorry. That's yeah. right. Alice, A-L-I-C-E, dot Connecticut, ctunitedway.org. And they can read more about the report and they can access previous year's reports as well. Um, and regarding the minimum wage, uh, you know, there are a lot of experts on that. Um, we feel that it's important to refer to them uh, for that information. Um, and so we like to stick with our Alice information and look through that lens. Lisa Tupper Bates is the president and CEO of United Way of Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us again and giving us uh, an in-depth look at the Alice Report and what it means to people who are having trouble making ends meet in Connecticut today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And that's it for this chapter of The Full Story. Be sure to keep up to date with our latest posts. Subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Full Story is produced by Sophie Kamizzi and senior producer Dan Lopez. I'm Tom Kuzer. Thank you for listening to The Full Story. Thank you.